Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 92, I'm Trying to Atone. This week we have a special bonus discussion of the first series and a half of Doctor Who with the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, as well as season one, episode 17 of Angel, Eternity. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Let's talk about Doctor Who. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) So what about Doctor Who? No, um, we, we actually put together... A couple of questions, but I guess first of all, um, just to give folks a little background. So, as Ed mentioned, we do. It's actually Cat and Kurt's TV review. So, ladies first on that. But, I need um, to get the top billing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> to diva. Uh, yeah, but basically, yeah, we talk about Doctor Who and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and now Angel as well, since we've gotten that far in that series. Cool. But uh, we're limiting our discussion here today to Doctor Who. I'm actually fairly new, although it doesn't seem like it. I'm on the fifth season now, so yeah. I guess newbie doesn't quite um, fit anymore, but uh, relatively new as well. And, and Would you still be considered a newbie if it's just your first time through still? You know, I mean, does well, that count? Yes, although it's just really I've gone slow. back. <laughs> I've gone back since I started and rewatched some of the earlier seasons with my daughters. So right. um, it's actually my second time through on some of the seasons. But mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, why don't uh, Corey? Why don't you give us an idea of how far you've got, and and we can kind of take it from there. Sure. Well, I mean, this is something I've been really in, you know, Doctor Who has kind of been looming in my awareness as something, you know, for a long time now as something that even, frankly, even before the new Who came out, you know, Doctor Who was always kind of in my mind as like that other thing, you know, you know, like when I think of like classic, you know, fantasy and sci-fi pop culture stuff you know it's like star wars star trek doctor who you know i kind of i had them all sort of in the same kind of category um but doctor who was the one i knew nothing about i mean i i i i had only the in fact most of what i had known about doctor who i picked up in references i didn't get that were made by my students over the years um i mean like i i i knew about the tardis for instance because there were like a multiple tardis references and some of the things that my college students had been doing and they had like had vaguely to explain to me what that was. So um, anyway, so but it was it was something I'd always been kind of interested in, uh, been interested in doing. I finally just a couple months ago got a chance to sort of sit down and start, and I've been I, I never get too much time to watch stuff, so I'm uh, I, I, you know I was still proceeding uh, sort of slowly through. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, to me, the thing that I've been really most fascinated to to watch, and and actually, even sort of this goes to sort of the fundamental premise of your podcast, which I think is really great. Both of those series, uh, both Doctor Who and Buffy, of course, are are two really iconic series. You know, but both of them are sort of series which outsiders might not get, might be sort of puzzled by. I mean, if somebody just saw like one random Doctor Who episode or one random Buffy episode, they probably wouldn't get like the reason for the cult following of both of those shows, you know? Um, So I I really, I really admire the whole premise of what you guys are doing to sort of go through and say, you know, like, let's try to, let's try to kind of 
um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things about what you guys are doing, uh, which is, is so congenial to me personally. Both your, <laughs> both your your plans to sort of you know go through the whole thing in order, not just kind of talk vaguely around, but really, really work your way through. I'm such a completionist myself. I really, I really appreciate that approach. Uh, but also, I mean, but I think for the sake of these things, it's really important to, you know, because what, what was already clear to me before I started watching the show, just from hearing other people talking about it and seeing references to it, is that Doctor Who was obviously one of those shows, which is not really primarily, you know, it's not like, Oh, it's because it, you know, stars somebody whom everybody loves, you know, and it's not about, it's not even about like the fact that it's really well written, though it is. Um, it was clear, it was, I, you know, the, the reason that I had been sort of moving it up and moving it up my priority list until I was finally able to, to, to do it um, <clears throat> was that it was really clear that to me the great attraction that people felt for it was essentially the whole concept of the show as a sort of a sub-creative effort, you know, the, the whole secondary world of Doctor Who. And I, I've been really interested to sort of to get into that. And my first impression from watching the, the show is that I'm, I'm really fascinated by how gradually we're brought into that secondary world. You know, the, uh, the way in which he uses, um, what he, I'm like speaking <laughs> vaguely, they, the, I never, that's one thing about TV shows and, and even actually even movies too, you know, you tend to kind of by default give the director credit for like everything that happens in the film because yeah. it's easier to think in terms of like an author rather than like this big team of people doing it. Anyway. The doc, one of the things that the Doctor Who team are doing, which 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 I find really interesting, is the way in which you know they have used in the in the you know starting with you know starting in, in the new who have used Rose as this really central character, um, yeah. which which I think works so well. I mean, it's really kind of reminded me of um, both what Tolkien does in The Hobbit. I was just thinking about this when I was teaching my Lewis and Tolkien class this past semester, and I was comparing the way that uh, the way that, that Tolkien in The Hobbit and C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the way that the, the kind of the narrative approach that they use to bring their readers into the fantasy realm, right? You know, you're going to encounter strange and, uh, and uh, you know, things outside of your normal worldview. Um, and so these figures which are mundane, right, which are from our world are very, I mean, Bilbo is not exactly from our world, but that first chapter in The Hobbit, you know, we're, it's, we recognize Bag End as homie, you know, and his resistance to adventure and his, his, uh, you know, quiet and mundane surroundings make us feel comfortable before things, you know, suddenly burst in on him there uh, in his parlor in Bag End. And so Rose, I found to be a really interesting sort of parallel kind of character, you know, to like Bilbo and the Pevensies. She's like the frame of reference, right? So, yeah. you know, we, along with Rose, are kind of taken, you know, on this adventure. Um, but it has taken a long time. I mean, really, I, I, you know, I am as... Uh, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm halfway through season two, and I still only feel like I'm just barely beginning to get a sense of the, <clears throat> the kind of the backstory and and the larger world. If world is world, not exactly yeah. the right word, but I'm using that <laughs> vaguely, of course. Um, universe, I, I, multiverse, universe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, the words are awkward there, but uh, um, but yeah. Anyway, so I that I I, I I I have found that the way that that has been done. Um, has been very, very, um, has been very intriguing. And I thought that season one um, was really brilliant. I loved season one. Um, and I really loved Christopher Eccleston as the <laughs> doctor. Uh, he was really great. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I thought that was, I, you know, that was that, that was definitely my my sort of first impression. And you know, one of my first, um, you know, the the first episode that I was really grabbed by, not just like, well, I'm watching this and it's kind of interesting, um, was the first Dalek episode. You know, because again, that was where, yeah. you know, m more than anywhere else so far. Uh, I mean, yeah, we got like, hey, like it's a like time and space traveling machine, and like that's kind of cool. But that was really the beginning of uh, you know what seemed to me to be sort of, you know, now we're 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 touching the very fringes of this of this longer story, uh, you know, this 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 much larger story, you know, the War of the Time Lords and all that stuff. So anyway, yeah, yeah and that's really where Eccleston, I think, steps forward really, mm -hmm. and sort of. I, I was saying to this to Curtis earlier. I always love ambiguous doctor, um, yeah. and uh, you know all of them kind of do that in their own different way a little bit. But um, for Eccleston, it really is that kind of you get that impression that this is the PTSD doctor that he's fresh out of this war, and right. the and the scars are very new. Um, yeah. And I think you get in that episode kind of the first time you really get the sense of. Uh, He's been so kind of, uh, you know, a little crusty with Rose, but basically congenial up until that point. And then you get a peek at this more dangerous mythic side, which is sort of lurking right behind, you know, a likable exterior. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I it's um, that's one of the things that I have found um, so wonderful about Christopher Eccleston, you know, is that he's. Uh, I really like the kind of the the sort of the rough edges of him. I like the fact that he's a little funny looking. <laughs> you know, I mean that actually was was to me a really um and in particular I found that that was really important for the Rose Tyler subplot, you know. Um <laughs> And it's been one of my primary reactions to the transition to David Tennant um in season 2 was, you know, one of my first thoughts in seeing David Tennant at, at the very end of the last episode of season one and then is like, boy, am I glad he was not the doctor from the beginning. Like, I am so <laughs> glad he would, because if he were, because he's adorable. I mean, he's completely gorgeous, right? <laughs> and that to me was actually a really big problem because had the doctor in episode one of season one been, you know, this completely devastatingly attractive guy like David Tennant is, yeah. um, it would, to me, have totally complicated the Rose Tyler plot. The thing that I thought they did really well, mm -hmm. you know, because I mean, obviously, there's there's like this obvious. I mean, of course, you know, okay, like there's like the there's sort of sexual tension between yeah. Rose and the Doctor through yeah. season one, but it's pretty muted, and she keeps insisting, and you can say like, oh well, like she's just in denial, but she keeps insisting, like you know, it's not like that, and I think it's really important that it's not like that. I mean, what she keeps insisting on, which seems to me so important to the whole concept of the show and to her role as like our surrogate within the narrative is the fact that it's the adventure that is drawing her in, you know? And if it were David Tennant from the beginning, it would be, even if no matter what they did, no matter what lines they gave her, nobody watching that could think anything other than, oh yeah, she just wants to go because he's hot, you know? And like, it would be, it would be as if it were just about him, like it was just his own personal magnetism, like, hey, do you want to travel through time with me? And she'd be like, <laughs> oh, yes, David Tennant, anything you say, right? But like, with Christopher oh, Eccleston, it's not like that, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it, I found that so, so much more believable than I would have found it. I know I would have had a problem with that. 
Hold that thought until season five. <laughs> well, um. no, there's like, I, I mean, I almost feel like I could have different responses to that contrasted to each of the later seasons, because I mm -hmm. think uh, definitely there's a bigger conversation there. Yeah, um, yeah. Now I know I'm still, I, I'm still at the beginning of the game there, but... And, and look, I'm going to come clean. I'm not going to sit here and say that Tennant's not adorable or that he's not <laughs> attractive. I also think he's kind of weird looking. I will contend that, you know, he he has big features and they yes. and he's alien looking. And especially I've, when he does that googly eye expression he does, you know where he does not, like the, yeah. the really big eye thing, yeah. I yeah. absolutely would not I I I get what you're saying and I totally agree that Eccleston is definitely the right choice to start it off. Um, but I think the further it goes on with Tennant, I definitely don't think that his only um, virtue as the doctor is his attractiveness. And, no, no, and no, I no, think no. I, know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But. Well, and, and I think all of the – that's definitely the requisite to me is not so much um, how uh, conventionally good-looking or not are the doctors. To me, it's important that they all look a little bit alien. Um, mm -hmm. And some are more conventional than others, you know, but those, that's kind of, to me, the kind of thing that they all have to have, is they all have to have something which is kind of strange, otherworldly features that don't quite look normal. Mm -hmm. um, so I have, a, I have a running thesis that Eccleston has a certain goofiness that just does not... Uh, it doesn't get matched by the other doctors. Cat doesn't see it quite as much, but anyway, that that was my initial impression. It's hard because he's definitely goofy, but I don't know. For me, there's a certain type of comedy that some of the later ones do that Eccleston yeah. seems to have a seriousness to him and kind of a no nonsense to him at times. That and I don't know they, that, all, yeah. they all walk the line between yeah. serious yeah. And, and humorous. I just, I don't know. That was my initial impression, and I'm sticking to it. It's the ears. <laughs> and, but also, yes. in, in that first episode, yeah, I mean, he, where he's walking around, he's flicking himself in the air. Oh, it could yeah. be worse, you know. And, yeah. and, you know, picking up the cards and kind of just going off. And, yeah, he does lose some of that a little bit and become more serious. But, anyway, that's... Uh, neither neither here nor there, I guess. Yeah. No, but again, and I think, again, that's the point, is they all have to walk that line. And, yeah. like, we talked about this recently in our podcast, that for me, like, there's a palette of colors that they're all working with, and some yeah. of them dial up a certain thing and dial other things back, and they mix and match. But they're all working in the same, um, with the same elements, I guess. And it's mm -hmm. just a matter of how do you apply them, and which things do you emphasize or de-emphasize. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the things that I liked. Um, uh, you know, Kurt, I know what you mean about the the sort of goofiness, and I really liked Eccleston's breed of goofiness too. My favorite part of Eccleston is especially in the first half of the season, his laugh. You know, like when something happens and he laughs in a way which Rose can share and we are sort of brought in to share, but which the other people that they're interacting with are like completely, I'm thinking like, for instance, of the, uh, the Charles Dickens episode, right? Yeah. You know, where he's, where he's always, like he just seems no end pleased about almost everything that happens. There's like the one moment when it looks like they might all die and he's not pleased about that. But other than that one very brief time, he just seems like he's, you know, 
the, that's the thing that to me was so remarkable is that it's not like the adventure that you're being brought onto. It's not just like and now we shall go, we shall go through you know a series of hairbreadth escapes across space and time. Though that's what happens, but it doesn't feel like that when you were with Christopher Eccleston at the beginning. You know, it's just like. Everything is fun. Like this is this is this is you know the the, the yeah. kind of I think he did a wonderful job of just sort of the sort of pure delight, like that impish smile that he gets, you know, when he uh, when he uh, you know when he's talking to people and and you know when he's kind of you know sharing these glances with Rose and smiling and holding up his psychic paper. Um, it's it's I mean I I I found that element of Eccleston's performance completely charming, um, and it to me really set the tone. For the whole series, like yes, these are, yeah. um, you know, the the peculiar because I do find it peculiar. A peculiar, I mean, in a good sense. Um, the 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 peculiar way in which you know serious drama and comedy are being mixed throughout this yeah. show. You know, it's and I find it so unusual because again, like it, it with. When when Eccleston is laughing at those things, if he weren't laughing, I don't think I would be. You know, it's like yeah. he's he's sort of he, he injects this whole spirit of fun, um, sort of informs me that like this whole thing is happening in the kind of spirit of fun that I don't think I would have guessed at. I mean, I don't laugh like that when I'm watching Star Trek, though I could or I might, right? right. Um, but but I mean. And if I ever did, I was laughing at them and not with them. But, uh, <laughs> but again, like when Captain Kirk goes on and you know goes down with an away team, he's never <laughs> smiling like that. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean Shatner never does that kind of grin. You know, he's he's always takes himself very seriously. The fact that the that the Doctor, sort of symptomatically. Um, you know, as as a rule, doesn't seem to take him either himself or other things really seriously. Now, again, it's not that nothing is serious because, of course, it is. It's not that it's all a joke, um, but and, but it's to me one of the most remarkable accomplishments of the show uh, so far is how that kind of 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 you know sort of delightful near frivolity at times can be combined in the same episode with real pathos and and uh you know and the balance that they strike between those things i find really quite remarkable yeah it's kind of good to remember that i think the doctor's sort of tourist first hero second like right. he's right. a hero but kind of accidentally that mostly he wants to go and meet dickens you know or he exactly. wants to go and have <laughs> yes. you know check out a new planet or show you know the companion a good time or whatever yeah i hadn't thought about it in those terms but that's exactly it it's the kind of fun that a tourist is having um yeah yeah he's not seeking a, even the fact i mean like the fact that they're showing up and you know you get this sense of like ah like we have arrived at a place because like the world needs to be saved at this point in time and we don't yet know why but even like hey let's discover what terrible catastrophe is about to happen that we must avert and like he makes it sound like the most entertaining thing that could possibly happen like yep. won't this be fun and 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 that's you know i i Kay ben abraham makes a wonderful point she says uh Eccleston would fit in with the Hobbit Rivendell elves, uh, and I agree. The same kind of flavor of delightfulness, you know, yeah. that you could see. You could see Christopher Eccleston's Doctor, you know, saying, uh, you know, don't don't dip your beard in the foam, Father to Thorin. You know, Bilbo's still too fat to fit through the keyholes. You know that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. 
going back to the idea of Rose as sort of the point of view character, or at least the, the character we're meant to uh, sort of empathize with, um, I know you, you're only about halfway through season two, but have you seen any change in that at all? Or do you still feel that way at, at the point that you are? And I'm not suggesting one way or the other that you yeah. should or shouldn't. I'm just curious. Well, one thing I think to me, in, in what I've seen so far, and again, I'm sure there will be many things. I'll, I'll look back and notice things differently when I, sure. you know, when I've watched later on. Um, to me, the first major shift I, you know the 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 dalek episode was a big deal um you know for ways mm -hmm. we've already talked about in the first season but to me even more was that moment the bad wolf moment that moment when they realized wait a second there's a bigger thing going yeah. on here and that seemed to be there seemed to me to be a, an overall shift in tone which even the dalek thing didn't because you know it's um um you know cat i come back to the point you were making about you know ptsd right um <laughs> You know, after that, like when 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 Eccleston shifts back to like, and now we're being we're having fun again, right? You yeah. do kind of once you see that come out, you get this sense of like, okay, actually maybe the fun is kind of a defense mechanism, you know, right. that he's he's you know like, no, we're having fun, we are yeah. going to have fun. It's fun. Once we're you've going seen to have. that, you can't unsee it. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah. But but it's still but nevertheless, it's still fun. Um, but once they, you know, it, it ceases to be simple tourism, right? When they get that, when when we as an audience are given that sense of there's something going on that even the bad guys don't yeah. see, you know. I mean, the, I'm thinking uh, in particular of the moment when is it the Slovenes? Am I am I am, am I remembering the name correctly? The Slovene. Slovene. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Slovenes. Um, the second one when she's doing when she's making the nuclear power plant in Cardiff that's supposed to yeah. blow up, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, they take her captive and everything. That's the one where they really put it together. So that, that scene, when they're asking her, why did you name the plant, you know, Bad Wolf in Welsh? Um, and she was like, oh, I don't know. I just chose that randomly. Um, that, that was to me, that, that particular scene is the one that I think of as that kind of turning point where, where you realize, like, no, 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 it's not even as sinister as a conspiracy, you know, mm -hmm. it's more sinister than a conspiracy because <laughs> the people involved in the conspiracies don't, don't even know, know about, about it, it yeah. right? Yeah. So, um and th that that seemed to me a really important point. And even you know we've never and I haven't felt in season two like we've really kind of left that behind. There's there's not there seems to me to be this kind of accelerating sense of the overarching story kind of coming together. I think, yeah. for instance, of the oh I'm blanking. What's the name of the um uh the 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 name of the uh, um uh system the weapon system that they shoot where they shoot the, the in the first episode the christmas episode of, of oh, season two torchwood torchwood yeah. yeah 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 torchwood when like we yeah. get the and then we get like the origin of the torchwood project and everything mm -hmm. yeah. you know so even so beyond yeah, the like queen thing. victoria and everything exactly yeah i like the queen victoria episode all righty okay um, anything. we had some questions that had been coming in uh as well um uh yeah, for the person who wondered if you're missing out on Doctor Who, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely. yeah. <laughs> That's an easy if one. If you take nothing away from this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, Andy had asked, uh, Andy Higgins was asking, have I seen any of the older ones? No. And I am such a completionist. If I could have, I would have started with episode one of the first season ever and watched all the way through. <laughs> I, I understand that's probably not actually possible. But though I recently noticed that, the, uh, that uh, Netflix has uh, included a bunch of the classic ones, not 
by any yeah. means all of them, but a selection of them. So I'm I'm excited to go. I if if I were watching it by myself, I would immediately stop watching the new one and go back and watch those first, and then resume watching the new ones. Uh, but I'm watching uh, the show with my wife, and I don't think she will have patience for that. So we'll 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 carry on through. Yeah, many of them are only available either on DVD or by like. Yeah. Less than legal downloads and things like that, <laughs> and and there are a number. Not even. There there are a number which are missing entirely from the yeah. late '60s. The BBC used to take film cans and reuse them. So we're not going to talk about that, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. many of them any are other, available. So. Any other questions? Um, I'm not seeing them. So. Oh, let's see. Yeah, there are. Uh, um, you have to. Yeah, if you uh, click on the questions tab there, you can you can you can see. Let's see. Um, um, Is there a support group for people who don't find the Daleks menacing? <laughs> I'll, I'll join that club. I'll join that club. I find the Daleks amusing though, so I don't well, mind when they turn up. Um, it was I, and actually Dalek. The Dalek episode that yes. one you're talking about is one of the ones that I do genuinely find more unsettling um mm -hmm. there are a couple and that's one of them so it it seems yeah that like maybe it's a familiarity breeds contempt sort of yeah. thing because yeah. it seems like the more you get exposed to the daleks and the, the more daleks there, and the are, more there are the less and, threatening they yeah are. the less effective they become at you know killing things and overcoming yeah. the doc so it's just like i i do think there's sort of a, a declining uh value to the dalek but the humor goes up as the fear goes down, so it bounces. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, I I found it odd. You know, I, I mean, I guess if anything else, the Dalek, um, and and again, and I'm speaking here on pure speculation because I've never seen any of the older shows. Um, but of course, I knew that they existed, mm -hmm. and there have been a couple moments in the early going when I have been sort of reminded, or at least you know when I'm looking at this and 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 I'm. I'm made to think of it. The Daleks have been were the, were the number one. I was looking at the Dalek and I was like, wow, that really looks like something from the 60s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? It's, it's uh, you know, and then even when it like remakes itself and it's all like shiny and new, you know, it's all beat up at first and looks like, you know, R2-D2 in the swamp. And then afterwards yeah. it's all like gold and shiny and everything. And I'm like, now it looks like, now it looks even more like something. Like a shiny thing from the 60s. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so, I, I think you know, it's, um... yeah. One of the things that uh, Stephen Moffat's one of the writers who I know you're a Sherlock fan too, Corey. So yeah, he, yeah. he runs that show as well. But um, he talks a lot about Doctor Who being about the fear of things in your house and mm -hmm. what's under the bed. And like the fears are all very domestic. And that right. how appropriate that the number one villain is made up of like plungers and whisks and like household appliances that kids can then like dress right. up as and play because all you need is like your kitchen appliances and you can recreate right. a Dalek. So yeah. it kind of is appropriate for what it's going for, I think. Yeah. And certainly some of the villains throughout are less than stellar. Yeah. The pun. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, at the same time, some of the episodes with the worst villains are some of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Um, which one of them we can't even talk about because you haven't seen it yet, Corey. So we were really hoping <laughs> you would have seen yeah, this episode. Yeah, you were really Sorry. close. You'll see it within like a few, but anyway, yeah. No. Okay. Um, okay. I guess. Uh, yeah, you know, 
but Daleks are Daleks. And you've seen the Cybermen, like, mm-hmm. they're Daleks 2.0 kind of right. in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The they at least had, like, arms that could move like this, you know? Yeah. That was a step yeah. up, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it seemed, that was the thing that was to me so fascinating about it, is that there's, like, there was obviously no attempt to make it look like anything other than i mean it wasn't like oh they're really trying to make something scary but that looks like something from the city no i mean that was obviously what it was was clearly what they were going for you know and that 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 in itself was um and again to me it was to me it was eccleston that made that episode you know Mm -hmm. i mean like he sells it yeah i mean we we his first reaction when he sees it Right. You know, yeah. he sees this decrepit, beat up old tin can standing in the corner and he's like, no, I'm like, dude, uh, OK. You know? <laughs> um, but actually, I mean, it was it was to me, one of the things that was so neat about it was that it's it's all about sort of tapping into the imaginative power of the viewer. Right. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not scary because it look scary because or because like it's filmed in such a way as to start it's not like the kind of monster that jumps out of the 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 bushes at you or or you know which just looks grotesque and terrifying um it's it's it, it it's only our own imaginations and as the doctor throughout that episode attempts to convey and of course we have you know you have like the stupid um uh, you know, like the rich guy who's collected everything, right? Who's, yeah. who's like a complete idiot. And, uh, you know, so you've got you've got both Rose and the idiot. It's always nice when Rose is around somebody who makes her look totally with it by comparison, yeah. right? Uh, but anyway, you've got... You've got Especially Rose in, the, in the following episode. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, so you've got that you you've got those two different levels and and you know and again so you know one of the, the the major you know points of the episode is the doctor trying to convince everybody like this is a you know yeah that thing that looks like a salt shaker it's going to destroy the whole planet and everyone's like how is the salt shaker going to destroy the planet so um but but anyway you know i i found that really effective you know and it's it's one of the things i think that is is to me uh, a real shortcoming. I mean, I, I'm hardly the first one to point this out. Of basically the whole like you know CG uh, generation. You know, it's like we have to make. We now have the ability to depict really awful and terrifying and realistic looking monsters on screen, but they're not scarier than like the you know the campy uh, monsters of the '60s and '70s. I mean, I, does anybody find modern? You know, movies with the 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 you know really great graphics actually scarier you know than great horror movies of thirty years ago. I don't really think they are, and I thought they did a really fascinating job of kind of tapping into sort of the the. the it's all about what we're invited to imagine, right? It's not about necessarily what you sh- what, what you see on the screen. But to me, even you know the way in which it it, it picked up on the whole world again the dalek wasn't just a monster even with the way the episode ends right and so you know it it itself you know coming to uh you know the way that we're kind of brought into um sort of dalek psychology uh, as it is you know as as, yeah. as as we see it there at the end um again was was just was to me a really fascinating glimpse because again it was one of one you know, i felt one of the first glimpses into this sort of larger world um and I, I found that I found that really interesting uh, and compelling. So anyway, yeah, well, and I think with all the 
the campiness of it, the acting becomes that much more important. You know, like you take the Dalek seriously because Eccleston takes it seriously and you're scared of it because he's scared of it. So your ability to kind of imagine what it might be and to like his ability to convey those things to you are what make it work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There are a couple of people who are, uh, uh, making ominous hints about episodes I haven't gotten to yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Resist. Um, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to it. Well, and I think, I mean, uh, we've talked uh, a lot about some of the writers in our discussions and everything, and um, I think definitely... Um, at the point you're watching, Russell Davies is running the show, and I'm a huge fan. I couldn't be happier with the job that he did, but um, one of his lead writers who then goes on to run the show later is Stephen Moffat. And in, in terms of scares, in the first couple seasons, the episodes he wrote, uh, which are the, the Empty Child, the one with the, the gas yes. masks, and um, the girl in the fireplace with the clockwork droids, yes. are definitely, he knows how to get a genuine scare out of you and the kid and me. And um, it's all about, you know, what's under your bed and what's, you know, uh, he, I think he just does a great job of evoking those fears, but also having you laugh the hardest and have a rollicking great time with the story as well. He really knows how to combine those elements. Yeah. I love the the girl in the fireplace, by the yeah. way, that was, that was just a, that was my favorite tenant episode so far. I, it's I, definitely I, it's one a strong of mine one too. Yeah. yeah, it's a strong one. That's yeah. what we were saying, and and I know I, I know you had some reservations about Tenant early on, and that's where a lot of us were saying was give him some time, um, and certainly give him Girl in the Fireplace because I think okay. for me, and I don't, didn't have a problem with him pretty much from the start, but that is the one for me where he really um, first kind of knocks it out of the park. Yeah, yeah, the 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 that was one of the and I think what I, <laughs> David Tennant fans are gonna hate me for saying this, but you know what I liked most about the girl in the fireplace? It was the one where I felt that David Tennant came closest to Christopher Eccleston. You know, like he almost rose to Ecclestonian levels uh, in that in that episode. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in particular of the, the you know what we were talking about before the 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 the, the combination of pathos and mm-hmm. goofiness. Uh, the way you know, he totally does the tourist thing, you know, the like yeah. I just got snogged by, you know, I, that, yeah, was, yeah. that was, uh, uh, you know, that was totally that was that was that was wonderful, um, yeah. and the way that you get both sides of it, you know, and and as whimsical as it is from both sides, you know, when he keeps coming into her life at different points and. Um, and you know, we 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 get a glimpse of sort of what it has been like for her, you know, in her own memory. And everything, but, um, but again, yeah, the way in which he combines both, you know, that kind of 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 fun, which is on the verge of frivolousness, mm-hmm. with, um, you know, with real with real pathos and self sacrifice. I thought it was. I thought that was really that was really wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the lightness of touch in that episode is what always it just yeah. floats along, you know, so easily. Um, Definitely one of my favorites too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, since Kat brought up 
the empty child and the doctor dances. Uh, we can't get through this entire discussion without talking uh, about something that's come up a number of times in our podcast and is a very Tolkienian concept of eucatastrophe, yeah. uh, particularly in, in the doctor dances. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably the clearest example of it in, in Doctor Who, but I mean, I think it it happens regularly, but not... To that not, extent. To that extent, and, and not always. I mean, even just if we're contrasting that with Girl in the Fireplace, I mean, yes, he sort of wins, but there's it, the Girl in the Fireplace ends sadly. So, yeah. like, the Doctor Dances is sort of one of the few, I think, uh, clear you catastrophic moments and we're ending on a high note and, you know, just this once everybody lives. And it's, uh, I guess, uh, just to throw out the concept there and just see what your thoughts are. Any other episodes that have sort of struck you that way or, um, well, I, I mean, mean I, I say that and it, that's like the clearest example. So, you know, I already stole. Though, I mean, as you say, it certainly is something it certainly is something that happens, right? The um, now the doctor dances. That's the that's the 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 end of the Are You My Mummy sequence. Yes. Yeah. Right? What we're thinking of is his uh, just this once. Everybody lives, and um, mm -hmm. and going from you know what I think is certainly in the first season one of the scariest and darkest, with everyone turning into gas mask zombies. You know, the whole right. city, World War Two, bombs are falling and everything, and to turn it around so that everybody lives and then we're going to have a big dance party in the TARDIS as our way out. Um, <laughs> right. Even yeah, Jack, yeah. you know, even Jack who you know is going to sacrifice himself and save, they get him out too and pull him yeah. in. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I really, I really loved that sequence and I agree with several people have been commenting when we were talking about horror and things being really scary. I agree that the kid in the gas mask was completely terrifying. It was, it was, uh, you know, I, 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 I think possibly the scariest thing I've met so far was the kid. I mean, as far as yeah. like the experience of watching that episode and, yeah. you know, um, I thought that they really did that uh, very well. Um, and I was, I was just chuckling a second ago because Brandon loves he quoted uh, one of my favorite lines from that episode, you know, when he says, go to your room. I'm really glad that worked. Those would have been horrible last words. Terrible last words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, that was great. But um, anyway, yeah, I, um, obviously the, to, to me, the, the biggest, uh, the biggest, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a test point exactly, but the, uh, you know, when you're thinking about eucatastrophe, um, that's of course a wonderful one, you know, the whole everybody lives idea. But of course, the very end, I'm forgetting the name of the episode, the the, the final episode in season one, um, the parting uh, of the ways. The parting of the ways, yeah. You know, I mean, you don't want to talk eucatastrophe, like possessed Rose waves her hand and makes the entire Dalek army disappear is a pretty big eucatastrophe, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I mean, in fact, it, that even seems to go a good deal beyond the pale of sort of regular eucatastrophe. Um, but, you know, what, what I found sort of interesting about, well, okay, I think I figured it out. I was going to say, what I found interesting about that is that I didn't object to it. It has the it has the sense, um, and I've spent uh, more time than I should, or probably, and, and and certainly more than I like, trying to explain the difference between Deus Ex Machina and Eucatastrophe. The two of them are not the same thing. Yeah. Um, and the difference is that Eucatastrophe undoes us, or 
eucatastrophe is 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 a marvelous conclusion is a turning is you know makes a story turn out well mm. deus ex machina undoes a story you know that's when you have like a whole story moving in one direction and then some semi some divine or semi divine person comes in waves their hand and all and and you know it's like the the, the sort of the crassest, most unsatisfying version of the thing that Sam Gamgee at first thought was happening. You know, is everything sad going to come untrue? Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't actually happen. Sad things don't come untrue, right? Yeah. You might win, like the, it, 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 the complete disaster might in fact be be avoided. But if everything sad comes untrue, then it's that's not that. Then the story is merely undone. That's yeah. so. The the parting of the ways like comes to the precipice right yeah. you know like everything is everyone's going to be destroyed and then bam Dalek, forget about the Daleks right the entire Dalek <laughs> army completely obliterated um, but obviously what saved that was the self-sacrifice in both of their parts yeah yeah, yeah well I mean, because there's the cost and the cost is yeah. the ninth doctor that yeah. that you and 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 I think and I've always said this when we've recorded that I'm perfectly happy to mourn each of the doctors and kind mm -hmm. of treat them as a pseudo death because I think right. it I I love each new doctor as he comes but also I lament the passing away of the old doctor too so definitely right. even though it's still the happy ending even though the doctor lives and right. you have a new doctor and it's very exciting you also feel the loss and the sadness of the last doctor and I actually Especially think they do you good... really like Christopher Eccleston all right. I love Christopher Eccleston. <laughs> yeah, Eccleston is great, and and I had the same reservations actually with Tennant mm -hmm. too, so or similar ones. Maybe you have it a little more, but um, let us let us. I'm really interested to see when Tennant leaves. How you feel at that point? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm, they, I'm I'm really looking forward to. I've heard great things. A couple of people were just referring to the season finales of season three and four, and I've already heard like legends about the season finales of season three and four. So yeah. I'm looking forward to them, but I don't know anything about season them. Season two is a whopper. Yeah. Let me tell you that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they all. Well, we were just talking. So we well, just all, finished. We just finished our podcast, uh, recording our podcast. It's not up yet for for our season recap of season five, and we were just talking about this that. All, all of the seasons have that feel to them yeah. uh, to that point, right. except maybe one, and we've, I won't tell you which one. I know you're not <laughs> averse to spoilers, but maybe there are those who would be. Right. Yeah, except, so, except one um, of them. Yeah. One, yeah, except one of them. Yeah, I'm sorry, not, not except season one, except yeah. one of right. the uh, season. And, but there, yeah, I... I it is hard to kind of, you know, it's easy to think of Yucatastri as being that, oh, you know, the justice wants everybody lives and everything's yeah. sort of happy and, and gay. But, and, you know, you do have the loss of the doctor. You also have, um, okay, so Jack is revived at the end of season one. Right. But he's also abandoned on this spaceship and you don't <laughs> yeah. know what the heck's going to happen. To him. Yes. And I, I mean, you're halfway through season two, uh, you know, I don't remember if or when. I haven't seen him. No. Okay. I'm like shit that I, oh, that I just uh, give something. Up. So you know. Uh, anyway. I well. So here's. I definitely remember recording that podcast and 
Curtis being upset that Jack gets I left was behind. really yeah. he was really he was really upset. So yeah, no, there's definitely elements of it um that you know you're left with unsatisfying or or sad bits along with the triumph mm-hmm. and the happiness. And definitely that's kind of a signature of the season ends, I think. Yeah. Of they right. they like to mix those bittersweet um elements together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's also helpful for narrative reasons to, to jumpstart the next season with sure. a little uh, pain to work through. <laughs> right. And that's right. one of my favorite things about the Christmas invasion is that they give Rose that episode to really mourn yeah. and grieve and kind of mm-hmm. not know what to do and not really sure if she wants this new doctor or if she likes him or um, she'd rather just go back to the old one, just like the audience. So, <laughs> right, right, and Again, I, she's your point of view in that. In that, exactly. Episode. Though I think actually it was the it was the end of the Christmas episode, in the beginning of season two, that more than anything, that was like the biggest thing I had to overcome with Tenet, because that was the only time in which I found myself going in the exact opposite direction of Rose. Right, the Doctor revives and comes out, and Rose is. She's like won over immediately, mm. and she seems primarily won over because he's hot, and <laughs> at least that's the impression I got from her. And and I'm sitting there, and my wife and I were both like, "He is so annoying," you know. I mean, he was. It was. It, I mean, I was. I was cool at the morning. I was morning too, you know. And it was fine. But then, yeah, when he comes out, and it was, I, 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 you know, it, it was goofy, and I'm like, "Okay, goofy. I get goofy. Like it's, you know, I like goofy. It's fine." Um, but it's just the the whole the sort of element of it, and then I well the other thing the other kind of confounding variable um, mm-hmm. I know which I know again was another thing that both my wife and I um, shared is that we both really hate what I'm, I'm blanking name of the prime minister You're talking about Harriet Jones Harriet Jones and yeah. His. We both hated what he did to Harriet Jones at the end Don't of that. Think nah. We were like totally pro Harriet Jones, and we were like, <laughs> "Man, two thumbs up! We'd have done the same thing, Harriet Jones. Shoot him out of the sky! I'd do it ten times." <laughs> and and uh, and and, and uh, anyway, so we were both like, so you know, for for the, you know, so we were like, okay, so not only do we find, uh, you know, Tenant kind of like you know manic and annoying but uh but also like he immediately <laughs> starts like you know dissing on the character we both love so so yeah no that's that was that was actually a big part of the I mean, and it was better even by the time we got to like queen victoria it was better i mean mm-hmm. i liked him yeah. already better in that episode yeah. and certainly he was great in the girl in the fireplace so um and even in the the uh the 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 men of steel the mm-hmm. the yeah, the rise of the Cybermen. Yeah, the rise of the Cybermen. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've adapted, um, uh-huh. but I'm still, uh, you know, although that there have been flashes so far, I'm still, I, I, I trust, you know, by the time I get through season two and everything, I'll be, yeah. I'll be better, you know, I'll be, I'll be fully adjusted. Um, well, I think it's, it's, um, I, you know, Eccleston starts with kind of a clean slate, and he kind of establishes what the Doctor is and what you expect, whereas now. Um, and maybe that's less true for people who knew the show before and came to it with expectations. But for those of us who start with the new show, Eccleston's really what we're first introduced to as the doctor. Um, so each of the subsequent doctors has a little bit more of a challenge that they then have to kind of reestablish and, you know, work with our expectations. So 
usually I think it takes a lot of people about a season to kind of, you know, you give them a season to kind of win you over. Um, and, right. and then in subsequent seasons, if they stay that long, they get to expand on that and, um, you know, mm -hmm. go in different directions. So right. Right. we'll have to revisit uh, once you've seen a couple more seasons Maybe then, maybe when you do the next regeneration, we'll have to come back in. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be fun. I see uh, uh, Trish and Ed have shown up like the Grim Reapers to uh, uh, very gently informing us by their kind and benevolent presence that uh, that our time is up. I think. Okay, so here we go with Angel this week, Eternity. Um. I like the way they kind of name-checked it in the first couple minutes at, in relation to the experience of sitting through one of Cordelia's plays. <laughs> Even though that's yeah. not really, like, what the episode's about. It's like, right. you know, Angel says, I thought I knew eternity. So even for a immortal, right. get... immortal demon, uh, you know, yeah. one of... Um, uh, one of Cordy's plays is kind of tough to sit through. Yeah. Yep. Well, and it, it is funny too. Cause like in, in many sort of instances where you have like immortality, I'm thinking of like Tolkien's elves or whatever, mm. you know, you do have the idea that like, they don't care about like short periods of time passing, you know, right. because they have extremely long lives, right. but at the same time, like just a drop in the bucket, every, Every, everyone lives in the moment so like you can have an you know an immortal life but it's still agonizing to sit through you know <laughs> something when it's boring and you know yeah you don't want to be there like i don't i feel like no matter how long your life is you may not necessarily want to do that like so yeah yeah, yeah. um actually that reminds me of a line. This isn't a spoiler, so I'll, I'll give it. But in, in the most recent season of Doctor Who, it was a little preview, there's a line where the Doctor says, like, even my... So he says something about Les Mis. He's like, even my incredibly long life, there's not enough time for Les Mis. So, yeah. like, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. It's, uh... That's just asking too much. So, sure. um... But I don't want to start with Cordy, really. I'd rather start with uh, Rebecca, who's um, kind of our main guest star this week. Um, mm -hmm. So, interesting premise for her. Like, uh, an, one of these kind of episodes where, like, there isn't really, like, a monster of the week, really. Unless you kind yeah. of count, I guess, Angelus counts, you know, because he... Sort of, yeah. but like it's more about there's kind of really no villain. It's her, it's she's kind of the antagonist, I guess, but she's not like villainous. She just doesn't really understand well, what she's and doing. it it sort of shifts yeah. too, right throughout the episode. So like because she doesn't start out that way. Right. It's, it's the guy. It's I mean, if there's sort of an ultimate antagonist, it's all that's true, which we're gonna talk to about in a minute. But like. You know, he's the one who hires the stunt guy. So the stunt guy is like the immediate, quote, monster of the week, right. you know, who's not, but like not really trying to kill her, right. too, yeah. right? Like that we find out later, later on, yeah. uh, that, you know, it was just a scare and get publicity and stuff. So, like, it's like then, so is then the antagonist like 
the press and the people who always want more and more and more right. from celebrities like that could sort of be the ultimate antagonist but yeah like that's also kind of nebulous so like does that really make sense yeah. either yeah um so, yeah and a couple um like running themes that we've had in the first season of angel that like have popped up a couple times like again um drawing on Los Angeles as like the specific world that it's set in. So, you know, her as, you know, a TV star who's, you know, not, uh, not exactly past her prime, but she can kind of see, you know, that she's starting the downward descent. Like I was thinking like, you know, Cordelia says like her show was on like, for 10 years or something. And she says something about her character being like always 22. So you think, you know, she, yeah. if she's been doing that show for 10 years or something, she's probably, you know, in her early thirties or whatever. Um, which is sort of like, okay, she still looks young, but you know, for these kind of hot yeah. Hollywood starlets, you kind of have an expiration date to your, you know, fame and your ability to do that kind of a role. So, um, like, yeah. again, like well, this idea even... of like LA being a place of loneliness and people who are desperate and people who are trying to, you know, build some sort of fabulous career, but like, they're all like, sure. you know, struggling to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We, she actually starts to say her age and it starts with 20 yeah. something. Like we don't actually get it, but like, I don't even know that I, totally would even trust that necessarily um like her saying her well age. you know just like i mean we don't really hear what it is but like it's always gonna i don't know i could see like you know actors fudging their age a bit and then maybe the the agent yeah. fudging it even more um well he stops her because and like that's the reason why i think we can trust that she's about to say her actual age is because he knows yeah. what it is. But like, to me, that's like even more sort of like stark because like, she's only 20 something like, you know, right. like whatever, whatever comes after the 20, you're still not old. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's the kind of the point is that yes, in Hollywood years, she might be kind of old and you know, whatever. Um, actually it reminds me of, I just watched forgetting Sarah Marshall again this weekend. Mm. And there's like that whole scene where like her, you know, she finds out her television show gets canceled. Um, the title character and like uh, Jason Siegel's character, like Peter or whatever yeah. it is, uh, is like trying to cover her. And it, she's like, you know, I don't want to become like, you know, forgotten or whatever. But like, again, it's like she's only 20 something. Right. So it's like, you know, like you're not like on the one hand, you want to kind of dismiss it and be like, come on, like, really. But then on the other hand, like that is. I'm sure a real fear for people in that sort of situation because it does happen. And like you have the few, you know, you think of someone like John Travolta, right. Who had like a good early career and then like was gone for like a decade right. and a half and then like came back. Right. But then like, it's kind of like nowhere to be found again. Sure. So like, you know, you have these sort of cyclical things, but even that only happens for like a few yeah people who are famous when they're younger. I mean, you hear about child stars, you know, Macaulay Culkin or something yeah. like who just kind of go off the deep end. And they're never really heard <laughs> right. from again. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and even and even more so. Not yet. And like, you know, even more so if you're kind of known for like your uh, leading lady parts. Like maybe it's one thing if you can be like a character actor or something, but um, you know, yeah. but if if what you have going for you is your looks and your youth, um, that can be right. even harder. Um, and feeling like because you're so popular and you know, well-known in that role that you're constantly being compared to this, basically, you know, snapshot of your life that you can't ever get back again. And so... Right, right. And she says, like, you know, she'll keep aging, but Raven, the character, will always be 22 perpetually. So everyone's going to be... She's just going to be a constant disappointment compared to what she used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is kind of an interesting... Like we talked about uh, Mm -hmm. Angel as the immortal and how, like, you know, even he doesn't like wasting three hours in a crappy play. But, like, what a a small moment in the life of an immortal vampire, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Whereas, like, in the world of, you know, Hollywood that like you know a year is an infinite amount of time like you know her show was canceled a season and a half ago and that's like she's passe at this point like you know that year and a half makes like is like 10 years in any other industry um and like how quickly her like brief span of when she's a hot thing is gonna like come and go um, so, you know, you, I like how they kind of like set that up as she, you know, kind of does evolve into the role of the antagonist, but you understand why she's doing that, you know, because of the career that she's in and the pressures of the job and everything. And especially when you have like, people out there trying what she thinks is people like stalking her or trying to kill her, you know, all she's trying to do is like get any other role ever. Um, right. You kind of like feel some sympathy for her. So I think they did a good job with that. Um, the other yeah. thing that besides like the kind of LA Hollywood themes, the other thing that kind of has popped up a couple times is like these kind of, potential but they don't go anywhere romances with angel um sure like we had uh i can't remember the character's name but she you know that episode um why can't i remember her name and now and then um the other big uh one the big one being kate who he's kind of back and forth with and like you know a little bit forward there's definitely attention yeah um and interesting kind of contrast i thought with rebecca versus kate because rebecca finds out you know what angel is pretty quickly and like how different her um kind of acceptance of it was and like the fact that she Mm. found it intriguing and you know kind of attractive given her situation and interesting and she's not afraid of him and you know 
maybe she should be a little bit more like I'm not saying those are good reactions necessarily but like how different a reaction than that of Kate who you know pretty much every time she finds something new about Angel like likes him a little bit less <laughs> like she's not happy to sure. find out he's the vampire and then like the whole thing with her dad happens and that makes her trust him even less than she did already yeah Granted, though, with Kate, like, her finding that stuff out, and this this might be more, you know, with the fact that Angel keeps secrets so that, you know, people don't find out, but then, like, something bad happens, and Kate finds out, like, sort of in the circumstance of this really bad thing happening, whereas, like, maybe had she known, she could have you know, dealt with it differently. Sure. So like, I think, I think there's some ambiguity and, and complicity on Angel's part there for the bad ways in which Kate finds those things out and maybe doesn't handle them. So yeah, no. And, and um, I don't mean to say that one reaction is right or wrong necessarily. Yeah, no, I didn't take you to be saying that per se. I just, I, I and think the circumstances are I definitely think, different. Yeah. Like in this one, um, you know, uh, Rebecca sort of puts things together on her own. So like, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, no windows and you like it dark and you're out at night and you're, you have no reflection in the mirror. Like finding out that someone doesn't have a reflection is a lot different than like seeing them in the midst of battle, you know, change to their vamp face, you know, when you're fighting another vampire, right? (laughs) Like at the same time. So like, I, yeah. And and not to say that, like you said, like, I don't think you were saying one was better than the other. I think it's just more like there are kind of reasons why Rebecca right. has a, a different sort of outlook than Kate does uh, in those cases. Not that. Sorry, I feel like maybe you didn't intend to make quite as big of a comparison between the two as I kind of. took. No, it. no. What um, more just like. We kind of keep getting these potential love interest and then kind of finding out why they don't work (laughs) or why they can't Um, work or why they shouldn't work. Um, And and they're not uh, all exactly the same, but it's interesting to kind of compare them. Yeah. Uh, Jahira or something like that was the name of the woman from she, I had to look it up too, actually while you were talking. So I couldn't remember it offhand. Well, and it's Um, like, it kind of does bring up this issue of like, okay, you have a lead character who is, you know, one who already has, like, a built-in fan base, you know, as, like, a romantic lead, you know? Um, Sure. And you have it established in his character that he can't really be with anybody. (laughs) So you have to, like, find a way of addressing that. And, like, I'm sure, like they're going to do all sorts of things as we go on. But like, it seems like for, sorry. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. It seems like for the first season, the approach that they're taking is presenting us with potential interests and then showing like a variety of reasons why it can't work out. So like whether, and Buffy too, because we had Buffy come in, um, and I will remember you. So like, and you kind of got, uh, you know, right. the again a reiteration of why they're not the going to work. The day that never was, and yeah, so yeah. I kind of 
I hadn't thought of this before, but um, I it's interesting that like all of I kind of like that all of them are slightly different because it's all sort of like they don't work out for different reasons. Like with Buffy, it's because Angel sort of decides, you know, makes that decision, you know, and then, uh, you know, with Kate, it's more she finds out about him in all the wrong ways. So she kind of, you know, pulls back and isn't really right. interested you know, and here you have someone who could potentially be interested, but then, like, kind of screws it up so that she gets to see the, like, terrifying Angelus side of him. And, you know, so that doesn't go anywhere. So, um, and even just having Angelus is a big reminder of why all of his relationships can only really go so far. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'll be interested to see where that goes, like, in future seasons, like, I'm sure they'll try different things, but, um, it's kind of interesting way to, like, it's sort of like, okay, you have, like, a potentially romantic character who can't have any relationships, so what you have is just, like, lots of tension with, like, (laughs) whoever, like, it is in a given week, um, and it's always this, like, unsatisfied tension, which, like, almost goes sure. places and then it doesn't you know and uh yeah so do do we have anything more to say about rebecca because i feel like we've kind of flipped over to talking about oh, angel sorry uh a bit no no that's fine i just wanted to make sure we didn't move on too much because i have more to say no no i wasn't kind of necessarily done with her i was more just talking about their relationship but no we can talk about her yeah i have more to talk about angel is what ah. i'm saying uh not rebecca I so see. if if Unless there's anything more um, on her part that you wanted to say. No. No. Let's talk about I mean, Angel. I feel like I said I said this to you um, sort of offline before we watched these, um, that I actually didn't really remember this episode <laughs> that well. Um, and I kind of feel like, like we've had a few of these types of episodes where, like, it's not a bad episode, no. but it's... It, and and it makes a decent point or whatever. Like, it has an okay premise. But it's not really, like... Like, I feel like next season, this episode isn't that important in the grand scheme of yeah. things. Um, I do, I do like... Cause, and I hadn't honestly ever really thought of it the way that you just sort of described. Insofar as, like, we do get a number of these episodes that are sort of exploring Angel's relationship... Uh, potential i guess in in the first season here so i like yeah like it's kind of like just playing variations on a theme like okay how far can we sort of take these different scenarios in which angel could potentially fall in love with someone Mm -hmm. or at least you know date someone for a while and find out um that stuff so i like i like that um sort of aspect to it but yeah again like i feel like that's the sort of thing that's sort of more important in aggregate than like individual to this episode per se. Um, Also just, I guess maybe on that point, want to note that this is the second episode written by Tracy Stern Mm -hmm. um, and the final episode written by her. Um, She also wrote the bachelor party episode, which I kind of feel is, it is similar in that tone. And I don't, you know, I don't want to blame it on her per se. Like maybe she just had a couple of bad straws, but the fact that she doesn't come back to write any further episodes, like, 
you know, she moved on. She did other things. I think sure. she eventually, you know, went on to like How I Met Your Mother and a few, you know, some other shows and stuff. So that's fine. Like she still was working and whatever. Yeah. But like, I like neither of these episodes are hugely yeah. impressive from sort of a storytelling perspective or from a character perspective, you know, outside of, you know, the main characters or anything. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think they're fine. I don't think they're bad. Like they're certainly it's no, you know bad eggs or whatever you know sure. like you yeah know, there's but some it, episodes that are fine when you're watching and then you go to talk about them and yeah. you're like well there's not that much to say it's not that they're right. bad episodes as like a piece of viewing but, yeah um yeah. and and so like in the same sort of lines like i would say the same thing just kind of about oliver like we saw him once before he yeah. was in city of you know at the party where angel runs into cordy uh but, I mean, there's not much to say. He's no. kind of a skunk. Yeah. You know, and does what PR guys, especially desperate PR guys, I guess, do and sort of tries to drum up, yeah. you know, some attention for his client. Um, who, like, I think, you know, we talk sort of about sort of the complex motives of Rebecca mm-hmm. and can sort of understand and forgive her. Like, Maybe a little less with Oliver, we can understand some of the stuff. But at the same time, I do think you can sort of understand it too. Because, it, like, I think, I actually don't think that we're meant to take him as lying when he says, like, you, you know, he's like, you know, I, you, you know, I love you, right? And she's like, yes. Like, I actually think he does in his own way sort of care about yeah. her and want to see her succeed. It's just he's got a really going poor way of way, going yeah. about you know how he how yeah. he sort of promotes his client and what like he's I think willing he does see to her do as, to yeah. see her happy and successful yeah. yeah and and he is you know definitely cutthroat and yeah. and whatever in that sort of la kind of way but like i don't think that necessarily means that he dislikes her or that like he only right. sees her for her earnings potential kind of thing right um, I think there is a sort of genuine, genuine if twisted, yeah. affection there for Rebecca, um, and like even you know, and she's even like, you know, what does she say? Like, you know, I don't pay you to love me, and he goes, no, you get that for free. And like, I, I kind of like, I kind of want to take him at his word, for yeah. that. like that again. There is sort of a genuineness, it, even if it comes out all wrong, you yeah. know, and sort of convoluted uh, in in practice, um, and maybe not really well thought through so yeah and again angel uh, with the kind of adult ambiguity and everything of like here's an episode where we kind of don't have a villain or a monster really it's just people making mistakes and not necessarily always doing the right thing yeah um um so i don't have anything else to say about him per se but no no let's talk about angel <laughs> um, okay, good. Because the one thing I wanted to to make sure we talked about, and all of, and and probably the most important thing from my perspective mm-hmm. uh, that I think, of, although certainly feel free to disagree if you see other things that are important as well, um, is is actually comes from Wesley about Angel, and I and it has to do with all of the relationship stuff. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, we get the idea, like Cordy, you know, is very upset that Angel spent the night at Rebecca's yeah. house and is stating her fears about what could happen, you know, with him becoming Angelus again. And 
Wesley says, you know, well, the reason that Angel, you know, turned was not just because of having sex with Buffy, basically, but because it was with Buffy. And like he he points out something that actually I think you pointed out a while ago and I didn't really say anything mm-hmm. um, was was that like there does seem to be something special about the Buffy Angel connection mm-hmm. that's not there. And that that the moment of true happiness may not actually be like the act of sex, but right. the it you know, but that there's something deeper and more content because right. and I think we mentioned this at the time. Like, he doesn't actually turn into Angelus, like, right. you know, at climax. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's afterwards when they're in bed together right. and relaxing and sleeping and whatever, like, that it sort of happens. And I guess, I guess you could sort of maybe explain, maybe there's a delay to the magic. But then again, it's like, when is there ever a delay to yeah, the magic? Yeah, like, I, I, you know. And- I'm glad to find that that might be kind of validated in the story because that's kind of the way I took it. And, like, uh, it does seem to me that, like, the physical act is not necessarily always the same as what's going on emotionally. Like, like you right. could say the same thing about, like, you know, say something like rape, you know, like, that's not enjoyable you know for a victim you know like that's not a pleasurable experience so like right it seems to me that the implication with angel is that it's to do with his emotional fulfillment and contentment and that's the happiness and yes right. that can come in the form of you know like we get that presented to us in the context of he and buffy sleeping together but i don't know that that correlation isn't necessarily causation right like i don't know that it's that we take that as um that that's the trigger or that that's Mm -hmm. the only element of the trigger or that it's the only trigger i mean right yeah i mean is it possible to achieve perfect happiness without the sexual component and like i mean sort of theoretically yeah why right. not like why couldn't you become perfectly contented and happy in, in that sort of right. way right but and, i think and like so we I think... could we like cordy could assume that it's just a purely like physical like okay you do this thing and this yeah. is the result and that's not necessarily that's only because that's kind of what happened last time i think we would be assuming something to assume right. that um it doesn't necessarily yeah. to me suggest that that's always how it works. And I think, so, I mean, if we could, if we want to look at it sort of metatextually too, like I think Cordy is taking sort of at least what was at the time, sort of the fan general belief mm-hmm. about, you know, the stuff that's going on and expressing that. And like, you know, so they're putting sort of that, idea of like oh you know angel can't have sex when now it's we're actually kind of explaining from wesley's mouth but then again i like how they do that because i mean like since you've already sort of thought of that like i i will say that that's like this is sort of confirmation of your beliefs but i think like also they do it still ambiguous ambiguously like 
like we're just getting and and it's like Cordy has a good point. Wesley wasn't actually there. Like right. Wesley is the theoretician and he's not always right. right. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, so like um in this case though, I think I think we have enough evidence and, and since you've are you've since you've held to that belief, I'll go ahead and say like that is sort of you know, this is like confirmation of yeah. that at this point. So like um and also I think it's it's evolutionary. Like I don't know. Joss Whedon may very well have been thinking that it was the act of sex right. at the time, then, you know, that right. sort of threw in. And then like, this is sort of, you know, retconning that a little bit, but actually I think it really works. And so, and like, I don't know that at surprise and innocence that they were even thinking Angel would have his own TV show. So I don't right. know that it was like necessarily a planned thing for his character, you know, to even explore that. Right. Well, you just think about, like, the particular story matters so much because Surprise and Innocence is so much about that metaphor for Buffy of, you know, her first time and then the whole, like, okay, the guy turning evil overnight kind of thing. And so it was necessary for the story um, for it to kind of be more simple that way. And... And it and it's a reasonable assumption for Buffy to make, given what happens. Yeah. You know, it's like you can yeah. see how she and her friends and the audience would then leap to all these sorts of conclusions. But it's like, okay, yeah. now that we have to have Angel have his own show, and it has to have a bit more nuance, there's room mm-hmm. to kind of say, okay, well, that's not exactly how it works, you know? Um yeah. And it doesn't necessarily contradict anything that came before. It just sort of adds more possibilities of how you could interpret it. Which is part of falling in love as an adult versus falling in love as a teenager, too. I mean, like, if we're we're sort of pointing out those sort of differences between the show and and the more adult themes here, like, I think that's an important point to make as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, um so I'll, so like i said like that to me is kind of it's sort of a side but like it's also i think a big confirmation yeah. or not big confirmation but like a sort of big takeaway yeah i think from this uh from this episode is that you know and wesley's right like true happiness is pretty darn rare like when you get right down to it like yeah you can even be like mostly happy, right? Not like mostly dead, but like mostly ha- yeah. <laughs> happy. Where, but like true peace and contentment and happiness is like really a very rare thing. Even just a moment of right. it is very very rare. So, well, and you think about that, just makes so much more sense to me from the point of view of like the curse itself. Like, the mm-hmm. the gypsies didn't care what kind of activities Angel gets up to. What they care about is his happiness and contentment. They want him to suffer, you know? And so it's about that. That's what's important. And so that's the thing that he has to always, like, be on the lookout for. Now, that doesn't mean that he also doesn't have to be careful about, you know who he becomes close to because one of the main ways that you achieve perfect happiness is through a relationship. So the two are related, you know, it's not like there's no relation there, but like it's obviously going to take a little bit more, you know, than, uh, 
than maybe we thought originally. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. So. Any, any other thoughts on <laughs> Angel's Care? Like, I really don't, like, again, like, I don't think this episode is bad. I just don't think that there's a lot to say sure. about it. Um, uh, so, any, any other thoughts on Angel and sort of his... Well, I mean, not a huge amount. Just that, like, we got to kind of get another glimpse of Angelus, you know, who we've had, like, a yeah, flashback yeah. this season, but, like, haven't seen the real deal for a while. Although it turns out to be sort of artificial and synthetic. Um, but he he's yeah. pretty creepy. Um, he is. I think because Angel is, and, like, we've talked about this a lot of, like, letting David Boreanaz do different things, you know, because Angel mm-hmm. is so brooding and quiet and melancholy and serious and laconic and all these sorts of things. And then, like, Angelus is, like, you know, just big and, like, this kind of showman and, like, reveling in his own evil and, like, mocking all of her, you know, like, sort of actorly ways of like you know they don't mm-hmm. they only see my character they never see me and all this kind of stuff and it's such a contrast to angel that it's kind of in a weird way it's kind of fun when angelus turns up it's like sure. kind of fun to watch even though he's pretty creepy especially the part where he like squirts the blood in her face like that's pretty yeah. that's pretty nasty um yeah so yeah, I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but, like, it it's kind of, it's a weird kind of tension reliever for the Angel character when Angelus gets to, like, sure. let rip for a little while. I, yeah, and I do sort of like that, too. I think, um, I want to call bunk, though. Okay, on the whole synthetic thing. On the synthetic it's happiness a type contrived. thing. I just think, like, if it's providing, because ha- the, the, again, the going back to our yeah. whole yeah. discussion of the spell, the spell is supposed to be able to somehow distinguish between, like, true happiness and not true happiness. Right. And this is clearly not true happiness, right. it's synthetic happiness. Right. Like, so. I feel like, yeah. I mean, you know, on the one hand, if we're taking sort of the world and its things, you know, in it sort of seriously, you know, just as a starting point, yeah. then we have to acknowledge it. Sure. <laughs> but but I don't have to be happy yeah. about it. Yeah, um, I'd agree with you. Like, even though I, like, enjoyed the episode fine, I I kind of agree. Like, I have to... I... And and this will be the episode that I sort of point to to anyone who says I'm just a Whedon fanboy and never criticize. Um, sure. Because I, I I think I think it is I I I really feel like it is sort of a, a pulling the wool over the viewer's yeah. eyes sort of moment here to to just sort of hand wave and say this you know somehow we can have Angel's a- Angel lose his soul but only temporarily yeah. due to a drug yeah. like yeah and it's a bit like, having I guess your if, cake and eating it too 
Um, yeah, like because when he lost his soul before, it w- there was like no way to get it back except they had to go find like all this stuff right. and do this ritual and you know like. Oh no! Actually, he came. He came back from. Uh, oh yeah, no, she does the ritual, then he gets sent out. Yeah. Right. So no, I was right. I'm sorry. I had to think. About I mean, it. and this is the kind uh, of lesson I guess for the team is like, don't bring Angelus back unless you really mean it, because putting him back in yeah. is you know kind of a big deal. Um, yeah. Or should be, you know, and because they've made such a big thing out of it. Um, so I don't. I mean. It, it, Maybe you can make it work if it's like the drug sort of like suppresses the soul for a while or like, you right. know what I mean? But like, and, and you do sort of get that sense like when he, cause he squirts the blood in your mouth and then he's like, Oh my God, I'm so yeah. sorry. Like, you know, I didn't know what came over me for a minute there. So you do get this sort of sense, like maybe there's an internal struggle going right. on there. Um, yeah. but yeah. you know, yeah, it's just a, it's a bit contrived. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I mean, at the same token, like, I do, like, I agree with what you were saying about it is kind of fun to see Angelus come back and give that reminder, because we haven't seen Angelus yet in Angel, no. have we? only I in mean, flashback. At, in flashback, yeah. in flashback. Um, um, yeah, it's like, normally, um, Tolkien has a whole thing in on fairy stories about, like, he doesn't like the idea of suspension of disbelief, like if that's a problem. So you, what you want is secondary belief, you know, so that you enter imaginatively into the world. And when you're in the story, you believe it. And I kind of tend to go with him. So if I find myself, you know, actively suspending disbelief, then that's usually, that's usually a problem, you know, like, and even like, in Buffy and Angel and Doctor Who, which can have, like, you know, laws of physics, which don't really... it To me, I can buy most of it because in that world, I believe secondarily right. in the world that they present. But, you know, this is probably one of the ones you'd put on the side of, okay, I have to actively decide not to let it bother me because I right. my brain kind of knows that it makes... that it doesn't make sense... But I'm sort of like, okay, I'm going to like actively just ignore that so that I can enjoy the story. Right. Right. And right. And like you say, like it's it's not that it doesn't make because, yeah, of course, it doesn't make sense. It's fantasy. But like it's not that it doesn't make sense. But it's as it's been presented within within that world's. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, okay, moving on. (laughs) Um well, I like that. Sorry, no, go no, ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, that I, I like that, though. We do get sort of, and with Angelus picking up, as he does, like, we've seen him before, he knows exactly where to press people, oh, like, yeah. almost instinctively. Like, it's it's not even like, you know, he has to really think about it. He just knows what it is that, people are uh sensitive to and like uh uh yeah you know that 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 sort of um oh what's the word i can't think of it anyway but you know like with cordy's acting mm-hmm. and with wesley i it's it's less clear what he picking on with wesley like that he doesn't have courage i guess is sort of yeah what's implied or 
you know, yeah, inadequacy. Like inadequacy. Yeah. 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 There we go. I guess we found the word. Um, but the, the, you know, the idea that he can just, he, not only that he finds the button and he presses, but then he presses harder and then digs in and like breaks the skin and keeps going like, you know, uh, and just whatever. And, Although at the end, like, I like that we get Wesley sort of with his forgiveness yeah. line, you know, the I don't envy you kind of line, which actually might have been a better title now that I think about mm. it. Anyway, the um, the idea that he, you know, that he is able to sort of intellectually, and the, I mean, and that's Wesley, right? He, again, he's the theoretician. Mm. He's able to sort of intellectually look past yeah. the emotional side of things. Mm-hmm. Cordy a little less yeah. so, but like they do both forgive him in, in their way. But at the same time, you get that they're both sort of disturbed by yeah. what Angela said, even though yeah. they know is, you know, it's like the, <laughs> I had a chance to say this to one of my friends today, like the, the eat a Snickers commercials, you know, where yeah. it's like, you're, you're out of sorts here, have something that will put you back into sorts. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you might know that someone has low blood sugar and maybe isn't is more irritable than they might normally right. be, but that doesn't change the fact that what they say when they're in that state may hurt yeah. or even be accurate. Like, well, yeah, kind of, it I hurts mean, it's because it's accurate. <laughs> I, 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 I'm tempted at first to be kind of annoyed, especially at Cordy. Like Wesley, I understand. Like, he, clearly, his feelings are hurt. But he's trying to move on and look past it and, you know, not, you know, uh, yeah. you know, because it's like, okay, the the part of me that wants to be annoyed is like, you know, because of these drugs, like Angel really wasn't in control. So how much can you really, you know, hold him responsible, you know, even though what he and- said was hurtful, but then... You know. Well, and and also I just want to say, like, un, unlike, you know, the thing with Buffy, where he didn't necessarily know that that would break their hers either. But there it was like there were active actions <laughs> that right. he took, you know, to do that. Whereas this, it's, you know, someone slipped him a make, right. you know, so like right. it's even less culpable yeah. in this instance. Yeah, but I do think there is like you have to kind of remind yourself that they're not totally separate characters you know it's that there is a there is something of angel in angelus and vice versa you know and so you know i don't know that cordy's totally out of line for taking it as personally as she does you know and um i mean certainly what he said was was hurtful but like that there's the aspect of it too that um that like he bears some even though maybe not a lot he bears some kind of responsibility um yeah you know and certainly even for his thoughts like just the fact that he you know what angelus said to cordy is like a way harsher version of something that angel was kind of already thinking now i don't know that i agree that he like should have told her all that in the first place like you know, she kind of was like, you know, oh, you know, my friend should be honest and everything. It's like, well, okay, you, you wouldn't really want him to, you know, 
give you yeah, that. Yeah, but there's also that. It's just, it's complicated. It's, it's you know. There, there's also that thing. But, like, and I think that's actually an, a very interesting parallel between the whole Rebecca story, too. Because the whole, you know, she's sort of plagued by this. Nobody will t- actually tell me the truth. Right. Except then she, yeah, and this is sort of the beginning of her fascination with Angel, right? Like, wait, you don't know who I am and you're not just looking for something from me? Right. So, like, while it sort right. of plays out the differently, like, I do, that, think, yeah. I do think that there's a parallel between, you know, those sort of things. It's like Angel can actually be more honest about her because she doesn't know anything about her and he doesn't care. Like, right. you know, but, like, because he does actually care for Cordy's feelings, he wants to hurt not hurt you know her in any way and so he's actually sort of dishonest but like the very uncomfortableness of the dishonesty there is like what i think is more like cordy knows that he's lying and when you're looking for honest feedback and you know someone's lying like that's the thing that hurts it's like shouldn't as my friend shouldn't you be telling me the truth and i can i can sort of understand that i can't say that it's always easy right. to do, yeah. you know. Um, no, and that's why I said my first instinct was to be kind of annoyed at her. And then on the second viewing, sure. I was like, okay, she has a point. Uh, I can certainly see where she's coming from. And, and I think that is sort of one of those, you know, marks of a true friendship is that you can say anything or at least almost anything, you know, to someone and know that they're, they may not like it. They may not enjoy hearing yeah. it, but they know that you're coming from a place of love and friendship and, you know, being able to take that sort of criticism, Um, especially like with Cordy, where it's sort of an artistic thing, you know, like, I mean, I've, I've sent people stories and I want to hear their honest feedback. If it story sucks, then tell me you think it sucks and why, you know, like I want to know that, like, what do you think I've done wrong? And, and there are a few people who I can trust to do that. And then there are other people who, yeah don't do that like just think that you know like you know like i don't send my mom my stories to read because she thinks everything i write is wonderful right right. well i know that that's not true so like i'm just not even gonna bother right (laughs) you know but anyway um well speaking of cordy just to round her out you know it doesn't look like her stage career is really gonna take light and no. but you do get her you know that kind of oscar moment at the end of under she's very like wesley that way like wesley's kind of a bumbling you know fool but in under pressure he usually performs pretty well yeah. um and seems like the same thing's true of cordy like she's not really gonna you know storm the theatrical world but in crunch time you know against you know evil angel she like pulls a pretty convincing performance out so um i you know that was pretty cool to see her one up him at the end there yeah and um you know the other so we it's nice i guess to see that she actually does get a part from time to yeah. time because we've seen her like, like on, a commercial uh, stuff, auditions yeah. and 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 trying to get parts before but we've never actually like seen her yeah. i don't think actually get a right. part like she had right there was the commercial thing but then she like right, she didn't blew get that. it yeah like uh you know whatever so right. like it's good to know that she is 
getting some work uh-huh. uh, in in there. Although, will she get but any you, more after this is a good question. Yeah, and, and we don't, like, it may not even be paid work. Like, right. we don't know. Like, it's clearly very low budget, yeah. <laughs> you know, production going right. on here. Uh, we don't know how much she's actually getting paid, or is this one of those for experience type of right. Uh, roles? Right. And she may not even be the main person i wish she could be an understudy or right, something i right. don't think we have enough like information to actually make that assessment yeah um so anyway but all of that aside she at least gets a role she does and uh it's nice to see that she's not completely without uh extracurricular employment mm-hmm. of some sort i Anyway. Well, and I don't know that I have much for her, more for her or for Wesley, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't either. I think we've said pretty much everything we need to say about Wesley and, and talking about the other two. I mean, it. He's a nice sort of support mm-hmm. thing here, and we get a bit, few bits of info, but like yeah. other, again, the sort of the biggest thing being, um, that it's the it's the moment of happiness, which does not come easily. Yeah. Uh, which is sort of the thing we have to worry about with Angel. Yep. So, anyway. well, well, all right. All right. Then I guess we can call this one. And uh, we'll be back next week with an interesting episode of Buffy. Mm-hmm. Uh, won't get into it, but it's, um, yeah. Well. We'll, uh, and some more Doctor okay. Who. We'll actually back, back, be back with an Doctor actual. Doctor Who, the next Christmas special. Yeah, an actual episode this time that we're talking about. Cool. So. All right, see you then.